Um, taxes, taxes. Let me get to the punchline. <laughs> Think of a bunch of people gathered together to listen to somebody talk to them about taxes. It strikes me as a very weird phenomenon. Let me get to the punchline right away. And the punchline is that the conversation that we're having in Canada about taxes is dangerously distorted. It's just, and this distortion will, if we don't do something about it, lead us to, to sleepwalk into a future we would have never chosen. Um, we're living a kind of we're living as part of a magic show where politicians are distracting us with problems that aren't at the core of big government, big taxes, while they don't address the problems that are really right at the doorstep, inequality, poverty, climate change. And taxes are, 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 are the, the way in which I think we have been distracted from the real issues. Now just talk a little bit about how we got here, then a little bit about how we get out of here. Uh, so, and let me start with, with the, sort of a moment in history that was the motivator for writing, putting together the book. And that was the, the federal government's cut of the GST by two cents between 2006 and 2008. You all know that the GST was cut by two cents, right? It, it, that, that put a... a You still can't hear me? Apparently I have to do even better than I'm doing. Um, two cents of GST, put a little coin in your pocket, and buy a car, it's, it's real, but every day a few cents in your pocket that you didn't have before. Sounds really good. But no surprise that the Conservatives have done it. They had promised this. It was one of their political uh, commitments. Most Canadians hate the GST, hate the HST, because they see it every day. They, they are reminded every day, every time they make a purchase, that they're paying that, so they don't like the HST, except for economists who like it. Uh, so there's no great surprise that they cut, and it wasn't even the biggest tax cut over the last decade, that in the year 2000, the former Liberal government cut taxes by a hundred billion dollars over five years, a hundred billion dollars. So there was no even great pressure to cut taxes. Now do you know how much two cents of GST, put a couple of bucks in your pocket, do you know how much that took out of the federal treasury? Do you ever guess? Seven billion. Fourteen billion. Fourteen billion. Fourteen billion dollars a year. $14 billion a year. Give me $14 billion a year. I, I, I can make some stuff happen. $14 billion. What surprised me, what motivated the book was nobody pushed back. The liberals didn't push back. The NDP didn't push back. Nobody asked the question, what do we give up? What do we lose when we pull $14 billion out of the treasury? What is it that we can't do? Now, just to, as a matter of interest, that $14 billion was just one piece of, of a decade-long jihad on taxes. The total, since, since the conservative government was elected just at the federal level, is $45 billion a year out of our tax system. If you go back to the 2000 tax cuts by the liberals, it's 100 
billion dollars a year. So when you think people say we can't afford Medicare, we can't afford childcare, we can't afford to bring an end to child poverty, when you people hear people say that, you've got to ask yourself, how come we can't afford it when we have the big, a big an economy bigger than Canada has ever seen, an economy bigger than when we created Medicare, an economy bigger than when we created public education, and now we can't afford these things. So, so how, again, how did we get here? Um, the, the book traces, and, and you're not going to be interested in tracking the sort of the, the neoliberal Reagan, Thatcher, trickle-down economics insanity that dominated English-speaking countries. I'm not going to take you through that, but here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that there is a group of economists who convinced a lot of people in Canada and the States that the answer to our problems was more market and less government. That somehow the market, private sector, was going to be the solution to all the problems. And government was the problem. And you had to squeeze government down. And how do you squeeze government down, especially in a country like Canada, where we like our services, where we like public education, where we like Medicare. How do you squeeze them down? You pretend that there is no cost to tax cuts. You pretend that tax cuts are free. Now how can you pretend that? Well the first pretense is this somehow or other tax cuts will generate so much activity that they'll pay for themselves. Reagan, Ronald Reagan in the States, made that uh, case and ended up with trillions of dollars of debt and less service. Because, by the way, take it from me, write this down, insist on it in every conversation, tax cuts never pay for themselves. Never have, don't, never will, ever, never. But now even economists don't want to make that argument because it's so foolish and it's so demonstrative. So what do we talk about now? We talk about government waste. We talk about the gravy train. Let's kill the gravy train. And so we cut taxes, and our mayor is still looking for the gravy. The, uh, now, it, it, is, it, is, it is absolutely clear that governments give us too many examples of waste. It's, it's true. And, and, and those, those examples disturb us. And we should be angry, and we should hold governments to account that the numbers never add up to justify the tax cuts. There's never enough gravy to justify the tax cuts. The numbers seem big, you know, $100 million here or $10 million there, but it's a small portion of the budget, they're one-off. What, what, why we should be angry at waste is it takes money from people who need that money and wastes it. But taking that money away permanently isn't the solution. Making sure people get that money is the solution. So, and you know, the other thing about waste is we all, we all of us have different notions of what's waste. So you would say to me, well, who needs stealth jets? I would agree with you. And you might say, oh, this arts funding. <laughs> what's that about? I don't think I agree with you, but, but I get it. You might say welfare. Oh, no, we, these people have to have some tough love. I really, so we all have a sense of what's waste, but we don't have a consensus about what that is. So politicians can play to that. Politicians can play to each of you and say, oh, look at all the waste. And each of us has in our head a different program, but there's no consensus. 
And when we cut taxes, we don't cut stealth jets. We cut the help to the most vulnerable. So, and you know, I, I will say just as a matter of, we've all got to grow up. We cannot treat government like we treat our personal phone or our, our, our smartphone or, or distant, our cable services where we want to disentangle the services. You know, I'd like one from column A, one from column B. I'll pay taxes for this, but not for that. In a pluralistic society, governments are going to do some stuff that pisses you off and you're just going to have to live with it. Um, government's going to be like that in a democracy, in a pluralistic society. So this is, yes, we should fight waste, and yes, government should be held to account to eliminate waste, but don't you believe the, the, the lines that somehow or other the elimination of waste or the increasing efficiency will justify these enormous tax cuts. So what is the consequence of tax cuts? In a word, the, the consequence of tax cuts is austerity. Austerity. And us, you know, the whole the whole Western world is going through some version of austerity, you know, cutting programs, cutting services. But it's a little different in Canada because in Canada, it's largely self-imposed. It's largely because of tax cuts. Imagine how we would have gotten through the recession had we not taken out $45 billion of tax money and actually borrowed money during that time from taxpayers to give corporations a tax break. Imagine how much more resilient we would have been going through the, the recession had we had that flexibility. We wouldn't be dealing with debt right now. We'd be able to invest in people in the future and in the young. So we, that one of the differences in, between candidates is we chose this path. We imposed it. You, you, could say, you could say that austerity is the consequence of tax cuts, or you could even say Austerity was the purpose of tax cuts, a, a, a framework which allowed government to change government's footprint and pretend it was necessary, just as a square bracket. And in the UK, the Prime Minister Cameron inherited a huge deficit, a huge deficit, and announced that they were entering the, the era of austerity, the age of austerity, because he had to do it. It was a huge deficit. What did he, he, he had great glee that he was going to be able to cut programs and services because he had this poor Harper inherited a surplus. Oh gosh, what was he going to do? I'll tell you what to do. Cut taxes, get rid of that surplus as fast as you can, then declare austerity. Well, there you go. I have an audience. And what are the consequences of austerity? I won't go through them all. I, I'd like to keep some time for, for questions. Um, but let me quickly go through the major consequences of austerity. Obviously, in Canada, by the way, austerity doesn't look like it does in Greece or Spain. Because our fiscal situation is the envy of every rich country, we're in really good fiscal shape. We can do austerity in slow motion. That doesn't mean it's less consequential. It means it's less easy to see on a day-to-day -day basis. It's easier to hide, and it's much harder to put together the opposition to austerity that you're seeing in Europe. But slow motion doesn't mean not damaging. The first consequence is, 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 is perhaps for me the most profound. Austerity fuels, feeds already growing inequality. And it does that in a number of ways. Number one, it, it, austerity, even conservative outfits like the IMF, the, the Monetary Fund, or the World Bank have found austerity affects 
the job market, the labor market. It pushes people who are vulnerable, occasionally marginally employed, into long-term unemployment from, from which they have unbelievable difficulty recovering. It creates huge barriers to employment for young people. So it makes it harder for them to enter. And in fact, they have to choose increasingly precarious jobs that don't provide benefits, that don't provide security, and then make it hard for them to build the life that people of my generation, who sucked the marrow out of his bone, took for granted. So it, it creates inequality by having an impact on, on, on the labor market. It feeds that insecurity by snatching services first from those who need them most. You just think about it. You don't have to think migrants, migrant workers in Canada, forget the, the, the temporary foreign worker program for a moment. Migrant workers unbelievably exploited pay into the employment insurance system and are not by law allowed to retrieve any benefits from it. Think about that. Refugees in Canada are no longer entitled to essential medical care under certain circumstances. What? I'm a refugee. My parents and I came here. I brought my parents over when I was one, one a brilliant decision on my part. I'm very glad we came. But for me, this is, the beauty of Canada is its diversity and its openness to see immigration as, as, as a solution, not a problem, and to see refugees as a source of strength and our humanitarian mission as core to our, 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 our essence. And now we won't give essential, and under the rubric of saving money, Here's another example. Criminals, offenders, in the, in, make some meager dollars. They used to make some meager dollars when they built furniture to sell to folk. It was very small amounts of money that would help them reintegrate as, as law-abiding citizens at the end of their sentence. These are the most despised, pushed away, the people with the biggest difficulty, and this was a meager way to help. That's gone under the guise of austerity, we, we took it away and raised the costs on, uh, for them to make phone calls and simple things that make re reintegration even more difficult. What are we doing? I mean, I, I, the example, and, he, and of course these people don't close. So you could say, you know, it affects a small part. But I'll tell you, when you when you turn your back on the most vulnerable, it diminishes humanity for all of us. It makes us all weaker. It makes us all less. To put it simply, simply, austerity makes Canada a meaner place, and that's not good. That's not healthy. That's not healthy for any of us. So the second way that that. Uh, it contributes to inequality is by snatching the services away from the most vulnerable. The third way is it undermines our redistributive tools. So for example, what, what percentage of unemployed people do you think have access to employment insurance? Or the training or the income supports of our program? What, what proportion of unemployed Canadians would you guess? It's in the 30s. It's in the 30s. That was a good guess. I'm glad. It, it, it should be. It should be. It should be a hundred. Why would we not help unemployed people get back into the labor market and give them the temporary supports to ensure they can sustain a family? Why would we throw them onto welfare, which is inadequate to, to begin with? The, the, the squeezing of welfare and the squeezing of VI has made inequality deeper, and that twin of 
And, and by the way, when the federal government squeezes unemployment insurance, the taxpayer doesn't save anything. They're thrown onto provincial welfare rules in despair and, 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 and get trapped in a system uh, that's inadequate to their needs and doesn't provide them the assistance, the full range of assistance they need. And we still pay the price. In fact, we pay more because there's nothing better than a salvaged life. The people in prison, by the way, it's good to remember, are people. <laughs> And most of their lives can be repaired. So the, the, the undermining of, of our redistributive tools is an undermining of our capacity to repair broken lives and to prevent the breakage when we can. So that's the second way that, that, that inequality is fueled. And the final way is that those core programs that reduce the impact of inequality because they're universally available, become increasingly targeted. Education. When you, when you squeeze education dollars, not only does quality go down, but tuitions go way up. And you've got young people carrying debt, and more and more they have to weigh whether they can sustain that investment. And then they carry that debt to a, a, a tougher and tougher labor market. So, consequence, boy, do I go on. Consequence, <laughs> um, but I'm on a roll. Con consequence one, inequality is heightened, deepened. We become a meaner place. This isn't our king. This is not the kind of Canada I think most of us want to build. The second consequence hits us all, and that is a serious decline in the quality of public goods and services. That goes from longer waiting times to help in healthcare, to potholes that don't get fixed, to bridges in Montreal that fall on people's heads to a trend, to, to, to gridlock in Toronto that you cannot get home to your family if you live in the suburbs, they can't get to work if you, I mean, it just, and, and I think, what, what happens, that in, in the Republicans in the States called that, used to call that uh, starve the beast. You squeeze these programs so much that people start losing faith, faith in government, and then the irony is they don't want to pay taxes. They start losing faith in these programs. So CBC, I don't know if you read the papers today, but CBC is getting the shit cut out of it. Did I just say that? Excuse me. It's getting the, it's getting the heck cut out. It's getting deeply cut. That's the language, isn't it? I just lost, I had a, 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 a synapse uh, thing going. Um, profound cuts. By the time they're finished with the CBC, we won't care if they kill it. Canada Post. Squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it, reduce, raise the cost, reduce the service, and sooner or later you're going to say, ah, oh, heck with it, just privatize that. That starve the beast, and, and, and those programs become, so let me pause. Inequality reduces our will to pay taxes. How so? Because the people at the top, this 1%, this extraordinarily wealthy global elite, which I've applied to, this 1%, is so wealthy now that they can effectively secede from society. They don't need these services. They just, they don't need these services and so they don't want to pay taxes, but they also believe that they deserve everything they have. One of the things that happens when inequality is really sharp is the people at the top forget about luck, forget about the contributions of others. So, you know, I, I believe in luck until I'm successful, then I know it's all me. Well, that's what happens, right? It's no more and they don't owe anything, so leave me alone, Keep, I'm going to hold on to my taxes. And, and, and when, when they have that kind of wealth,
they have a lot. You know, money always talks, but it never has talked as loudly as now. Money talks loud. Because people have to buy, by the way. Start thinking the game is rigged. And we understand why the game is rigged. They don't want to pay either. Why would you pay in a system that's rigged? The people at the middle feel squeezed and think they're being pushed to the bottom. And by the way, they don't want to pay. So you have inequality leading to a reluctance to pay taxes, which makes inequality even more profound. It's called a social trap. When services erode because we don't pay taxes, we don't want to pay taxes because we're not getting good service. Think of the irony. Think of the, the trap. And if we don't change the conversation, this and you know, inequality and climate change, environmental deterioration, they don't stay the same while we're getting our act together. They just get worse if we don't make them better. So quickly, the last two consequences of, 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 of austerity, one of the consequences is it erodes our capacity collectively to solve the problems. Public service is weaker. The NGOs and private sector organizations and community organizations are often running scared and underfunded. Governments backed off them and it won't let them advocate. Um, democracy is undermined. The public service is running scared and that's an easy target. Whenever you want to save money, you talk about bloated bureaucrats and I'm going to cut their bloated pensions, I'm going to cut their bloat. It's an easy target and you just erode public services. You erode the collective capacity. You know, think about the cuts to science and research that none of us care about because it has an, um, an immediate impact on our, our ability to feed our kids, but it erodes our capacity to see the problem. The long-form census is gone and we can't even measure poverty and, and unemployment like we used to. The Aboriginal census is gone and they're not well captured First Nations and Aboriginal people in the normal census, it's gone. The round table on the economy and environment is gone. The Council for Welfare, the only place that concentratedly looked at poverty and working poor issues, it's gone. The Law Reform Commission that cared about criminals and, and criminals, it's gone. I, I mean, they're cut. These things are gone. Going, going, and gone. And, and by the way, if I had three hours, which I asked for, but they wouldn't give me, I would give, I would give you the full list. I would give you the full list. But, it erodes our capacity to fix problems if we've got to turn the sucker around. The final consequence is the consequence I care most about, and that is it stumps the political imagination. It makes us start to believe that collective progress is impossible. We start believing that nothing's possible, and when we believe nothing's possible, nothing's possible. Uh, I was at a dinner party, and somebody, uh, somebody caring and, and brilliant, said we should all have. I think with me, he said, we, we should have universal daycare, uh, accessible and affordable daycare for all families across Canada. That would be good for the, the labor market, would be good for business, would be good for the economy, would be good for families, and would primarily be good for kids and their development. It's also an equalizer. And everybody around the table, everybody agreed. Good. How could you disagree? Labor types agree, business types agree, but then somebody said, what the, what's the inevitable question? How would we ever pay? We've taken out $100 billion out of the revenue, and that's just federally. How would we pay? Taxes. Taxes. We had better turn this conversation around. This distortion, this distorted conversation, reflects a distortion, I think, in our relationships to one another and our relationship to the country and our understanding of the common good. 
You know, what are taxes? Taxes are the way we pay for things together that we could never do alone or never do as well. That's what they are. You buy shoes alone, you buy Medicare together. You buy a hat alone, you buy infrastructure together. Right? You buy a movie alone, you buy culture together. That's what we do. Taxes are also a statement of how much inequality we're prepared to tolerate. Apparently a lot. Pretty scary. And taxes also tell us what things we value and what things we don't. So we, we don't tax pollution in Canada, we could. We don't tax financial speculation in Canada. You know, the financial institutions don't even pay GST, HST. So, Taxes are, are the hinge that join us to one another in the public good and join us to the future. And if we treat taxes as a burden from which to be relieved, as a punishment, as a no-go zone, and if we reward politicians who give us those false promises, and if we don't ask the politician who gives you, promises you a tax cut, what will we lose when you cut that tax? We want to know then it's our fault. We have to change the conversation. And we can change the conversation. And it's easier to do it now than in five years' time when inequality is too deep, the services too cut, and the despair and distrust too high. So there you go. Time to change the conversation on taxes. Open to questions. Okay, so thank you very much for your talk. Um, so I, I like the conversation around taxes and how it highlights the importance of, as a society, we need to re-examine the value system that underpins taxes and financial markets and so forth. My question is around, uh, around I would be interested to hear your thoughts around how governments see the idea of social finance, social finance as a new movement of helping to pay for some government programs that, that exist that are undercut, that are, uh, that are under fire, being cut. And just the whole idea on impact bonds, social impact bonds, and just the ability of that to, to incorporate private sector pooling of capital and help to fund NGOs, fund social enterprise, social entrepreneurs and all that. I just wonder what your thoughts are around that. And you can see that as a way of even uh, solving some of the tax problems that we have. Like I'm sure on the margin there's room for this, but I I hate it. I, I hate it. Let me explain, let me explain a little bit about why I hate it. The, the most progress on social impact bonds and social finance and social enterprise generally has been in the UK. When when Cameron ran the last time he ran, he ran on what he called big society. It was based on a, 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 a policy by a fellow named Philip Blount, who when he was in Canada, I, I debated and, and he was the, the proponent of, of almost all of those instruments. It was a, it was a way of saying, you know, I love you still, but I'm going away. But don't worry, 
that you don't need me to fix it. There are other ways to fix it. We can empower communities. We can have. It was a way of justifying cuts to services. Now, and not every community, for example, bought into it. But in any case, that's. So, what is the evidence of what happens? There are a few examples. By the way, P3 partnerships are the way Canada does it, and they turn out to be way more expensive than public enterprise because you, you have to factor in profit. When you factor in profit, you make things more expensive. And this myth that the private sector is more efficient, well, on some things and not on other things, but on the specific social, what is a social impact bond? For those who don't know, you probably all know it, living in, but for those who don't know, it, it, it entices, levers private sector money on the basis that some objectives, defined results will be achieved. If those results are achieved, the private sector gets a good return on the money. If not, the private sector loses, so you're levering private sector. So what have they discovered? The private sector only goes into projects where the results are easy to achieve. Not intractable problems. Or they make the results easy to achieve by select, by creaming the easiest clients. So what would you do in healthcare? You just, you just don't treat the very sick. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best approach to healthcare. You know, um, what do you do in in post-prison population? You treat the ones who don't need help because they all reintegrate. But the real tough cases, you don't treat. And over and over again, we've seen social enterprise funding to be more about profit and less about helping the most vulnerable. And they, they, so, you know, I'm sure there are examples where it has made a positive difference. And I don't want to be quite as ideological as my ears make me sound, but, but everything I've seen, it's skimming, it's screaming, it's uh, creaming, and it's profit-driven, and it's not the way to go. Now, there are other ways to go, empowered communities. It, I don't see, I don't like the idea of a centralized government telling this community how to run its affairs. I think government's got to be much more responsive. We have to find, but I don't believe that's private. I believe that's redefining public so we close the gap between government and communities and we stop telling people in, in a community like this from Ottawa how they should live. But we frame it, you know, that when I was in government we did a thing called Skippy which was an attempt to go community by community to deal with homelessness and related problems because we recognized the solution was community specific, needed to engage the entire community. So I think there are different ways of doing it without having big government be your, your uncle and father, but I don't think the private sector is the answer. You know what the private sector is really good at? Private stuff. <laughs> I think that's more or less true, but not entirely true. So, Horvath was talking about corporate taxes. Uh, Wynne talked about taxing the rich and looked at other revenue streams to fund transit. And Hudak said big tax cuts and further cuts to service. And we know who the big loser was. So, you know, what I think is that in Ontario we've drunk the tea, but we're not ready for the party.
if you were Prime Minister or a public <laughs> your goal would be to reduce the growing gap between rich and poor. But the goal that precedes that would be to get elected or re-elected. So how would you raise taxes in order to achieve that objective? Well, let me, let me really bore you, if, I, if, you're not, if you're not already bored to death, but let me really bore you with my five principles of tax reform and then tell you which ones I'd start with. My five principles are, first of all, we're all going to have to pay our fair share. The things like the HST and GST, as regressive as they are, are part of the solution because they are a huge base, they're hard to hide, they're hard to move offshore. And regressive taxes, when you mitigate the consequences for the poor and you use them for progressive purposes, are pretty progressive. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is nonetheless, taxes should be progressive. Those who benefit most from the advantages Canada affords should pay the highest share. And the, the, the people who are benefiting now in unseemly ways should benefit unseemly amounts. And uh, that goes for me for corporations who suck the benefits of our, our infrastructure and the taxes that previous generations were more willing to pay. They should pay to sustain that infrastructure and to make sure that its benefits are shared. So that's number taxes have to be progressive. It's smart, smart to be progressive. Number three, a buck's a buck. If we work hard for money, it gets taxed. But if we get returns on investment, capital returns, they're taxed at a tiny, tiny portion. So somehow we're saying to people, it's better to make money from money than to make money from sweat. Well, that's nuts. I would kill that. A dollar's a dollar. Tax capital the way you should tax capital. Four, tax the things we like least the most. Pollution, financial speculation, uh, a carbon tax and financial transaction tax. And, you know, I would, I even like financial activities tax. So financial activities tax just gives me kind of goosebumps of joy. Because what it does is it taxes the, pro the profits of financial institutions, but it also goes after the high bonuses they pay. The higher the bonuses you pay, the bigger your tax. I like that. So that's number four. And number five is let's, let's go after inheritance in a very serious way. How much did, I want to pass on advantage to my kids. I have kids I do want to pass on advantage. But how much advantage should we, how much do we want to undermine true equality of opportunity? And so I think we ought to go after inheritance. Those are the five. Now you can't sell all that. But I believe, I believe that you could sell a financial transaction activities tax, going after the banks. Going after the banks is always good for the politics. I think you could, you, you, you may not be able to sell a carbon tax after poor Stefan tried and failed, although I think it's the way to go, but you could certainly go, roll back the, the, the tax benefits that the, the oil sector gets. I don't think that's a hard sell every, anywhere but the oil sector. I think you could tax the rich today because people are getting very nervous about inequality. And Thomas Piketty's new book, Capital in the 21st Century, reminds us one of the purposes of taxes is to, to reduce the greed motive and to make greed less attractive, less central to it. So those are three areas I would go. And I would roll back corporate taxes and link that to good corporate behavior. You make jobs for young people, I'll give you back your tax break. So those are those are our areas where I would start, and I believe those are politically saleable. I mean, you. Yes. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, I, 
I'm curious to know uh, your method, your tax method, you want to find points. I'm wondering how would that apply for Canada as a whole moving forward, given the specific context of Canada. Demographics, 30, 35 minutes, so baby boomers, and, and just the, the specific demographic of Canada. Because I think that has to be taken into consideration as well. So I'm just wondering how does your tax approach method apply to that? The banking sector in Canada is huge, protected publicly, hugely wealthy, totally right for what I've just said. The oil sector, you, you, you take Norway. Norway is a petro country, petro country. It had, it not only has a carbon tax, it doubled its carbon tax this year, doubled it. It has a sovereign wealth fund that has made every Norwegian a millionaire because they tax carbon and they tax corporations hard. They have the most advanced social welfare system. They're leading on eliminating child poverty. We make the promises, they do the actions. And they're leading on economic indicators left and right. So that they have a lot of our, our, our economic reality. We have a, an aging population who's pretty well off. We, 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 you know, we were born in that nice space just after the worst trouble and before the next trouble, and we just accumulated, right? And we buried it under our mattress, and you can't touch it, and we won't give it to you. And we're holding on, you know, we're more interested in holding on to what we've got and building something new. Well, I'd go after us. I would go after us through inheritance taxes, and I would go after us through wealth taxes, as Piketty says. So, so I, you know, now I would have a tax commission that does the interactions of these things really carefully because it has to be designed smart. I, but can we do it in a way that fits Canada and that suits Canada hugely? But and, and and in that, I would insulate the young because we're in danger of having a lost generation living in precarious work, and our focus ought to be youth opportunity and intergenerational equity, so we have to have a generational lens. But this is all doable, and you don't need to do, you can have a revolution in increments. You know, I would say the conservatives are dismantling the progressive state in increments. We could build a new progressive state in increments, and so you don't have to do all of this at once. One last question. Okay. I really want to thank you for coming here and speaking to us. I think this conversation needs to happen across the organization and across society. And I, I feel really proud of some of our organizations participants for fighting cuts that the Ontario government wanted to make to community start benefit, and they had a successful win. And I think if low-income people on social assistance can do that, we can have a louder voice, and we can be talking more widely with this government. For I think at a critical juncture in Ontario, this government, and federally, we have an election coming up. So, any suggestions you have for how we can expand the conversation? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm doing my part. Um, a couple of foundations came together just for expenses and are sending me everywhere to talk about these issues. They're not, it doesn't cover these sort of community groups, but, but because I've heard such good things about this community, I've, 
I've caught my hat to be in town, but, but uh, I'm delighted to be here. But, you know, a lot of us keep waiting for some mystical leader to appear, you know, Justin or Tom or whoever, and lead us to the promised land. That, that person's probably in biblical times, but ain't in politics in Canada. And so we've got to lead. We've got to lead at every dinner party when somebody says something about taxes. We've got to say, what are you talking about? Do you understand the social wage that you get? Do you understand how much you save when childcare is affordable and how much you screw young families when it's not? Do you understand how much public uh, financing reduces tuitions, that there's a social wage and there's also a, a, a source of humanity. And let's start talking at every juncture about what kind of country we want and stop believing this magic trick that somehow the size of government is the problem. When the real problem is poverty, inequality, climate change, growing inequality, youth unemployment. So let's get, so I, you know, I honestly believe that I'm watching social movements across the world and even North America. I don't know more. Uh, Occupy. The kids who protested uh, tuition in Montreal. The, the pipeline kids in, in BC. You watch this come on, on Gateway. I mean, and I see all of this as part of an enough already movement. Enough already. I mean, it, Enough lies, enough cutting, enough austerity. Let's build a better Canada. I'm not defending the present, I'm not defending the way government is, but let's build a better Canada. Let's eliminate child poverty. Let's not, you know, we're now the laggard on poverty measures in, among rich countries. Let's be the leader. You want, it, you want Canada to be number one? Let's be number one on things that matter to Canada. Equality, end of poverty, environmental responsibility generational fairness. And you know what? The economy will perform great.